Ravi killed your episode. He's awesome. He came in ready. He's great. <laughs> this is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a community advocate who is actively working towards having Canadian black history taught in schools across British Columbia. If you haven't heard of him, you absolutely will in a short time. He is all over the media these days, sparking important conversations through his advocacy. He is a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Shapers Vancouver Hub and the Lower Mainland's representative for the BCNDP's Indigenous, Black, and People of Color Committee. He is a member of the Steering Committee for the BC Community Alliance, a local nonprofit organization that is dedicated to dismantling systemic racism. He is Markeel Simpson. Markeel, how are you, man? I'm doing great. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Mo. It is all my pleasure. It is so nice to see you. And it is especially nice because you're bribing me. You brought me kombucha. <laughs> I figured it's the only way I can get out of here alive, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm such a hardball interviewer. No, I appreciate that. I feel like you've been paying attention to the show. You, you know what I like. And, and I'm drinking a nice Island Mango Dr. Brew kombucha. So I uh, appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, I'm loving the ginger lemon right now. <laughs> So I try to stay connected to the culture here in Vancouver and in the province as much as I can. And in a very short time, you're one of these folks that has like demanded attention. And when I say that, I don't mean that you've nagged me personally. You haven't. I asked you to come on. Nor do I mean that you're obnoxiously loud or anything like that. What I mean is you keep popping up in the news. And it's more than exposure. It's engagement. You're saying things that are interesting, and you're making me think, you're making a lot of other people think. And in my year-end episode with Tamara Taggart, I said that my power word in 2021 was going to be undeniable. This idea that everything I do, I'm going to be undeniable. Every time, you know, every time I do work, people are going to love it, and, and people are going to get engaged. And that's what I see with you. When you're on the radio, when you're on TV, when I read about you in print, I look at you and I go, man, this guy is undeniable. This guy is a star. And, and we'll get into that. But I, but I want to start off by asking you, and I want to point this out too. I think it's important. You're 25, 26? 26. Yeah. 26. Okay. 26. I think you're this absolute star. You're a young guy. You've clearly dealt with racism and systemic discrimination in your life, like a lot of people. And so I'm curious, at what point in your life did systemic discrimination or cultural erasure crystallize in your mind? Because I think for a lot of people of color, they feel and they understand these concepts on a visceral level, but sometimes they can't put it into words. For me, myself, I came across structuralist theory when I was going to university, and it made me look at power and privilege for the first time, and it gave me an ability to articulate things that I'd known or observed my whole life. And I'm still learning. So was there a moment for you? Basically, when did you get woke? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a tough question, but it's a great question too. Um, I don't know how woke I am <laughs> right now, but I'd say, you know, living in my body as a black man, biracial, 
Um, you experience those direct forms of racism your whole life, mm -hmm. um, and you hear about it from other members of your community. I know my father, you know, he's, uh, I'm of Jamaican ancestry and European ancestry. He's Jamaican, and, um, you know, that, that country um, was a huge focal point for the transatlantic slave trade, mm -hmm. and um, there was a whole movement to uh, emancipation and, and independence. And I think that that background, just thinking about it, um, you, you start to identify a few of those structural pieces of racism and how rooted they are into the historical experience of the world and for um, intergenerational experiences as well. But I'd say that the ideas around systemic racism for me personally were more so crystallized same thing, when I was in uh, university and uh, I had started to study more political science and mm -hmm. philosophy and I had a couple really great um, professors on the political science side and I was doing a Canadian history slash political science course and I was 21 at the time mm -hmm. and it was the first time I was learning about residential schools. Right. And, you know, I had to do a research essay on it and, and stuff like this. And it's just like the, the whole world lit up and you start to see like what this happened and why isn't everybody talking about this like Truth and Reconciliation Commission and how mm. it formed and um, how the indigenous communities had been organizing for so long and all that. And to think like, how is this not being treated as the most serious issue in the country right now? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that you bring up your parents. I know for me growing up in the immigrant experience, which is different than the indigenous experience, different than the black experience, but as an immigrant and as a person of color, I always grew up with my parents telling me like, hey, this is the country of opportunity and you can make so much for yourself. But the caveat to that was particularly my dad telling me my whole life, you have to work twice as hard as everyone else. And, you know, I, I was a kid and I'm like, no, I don't. I'm smart. I get good grades, like whatever. And he's like, no, 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 you have to work twice as hard as everyone else. And the more you can make something your own. And my dad was an entrepreneur and he did very well for himself, but he's like, the more you can make something of your own, that's what you have to focus on because there is going to be a ceiling for you. And, you know, some people might hear, oh, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy or whatever, but it's like, that kind of exists, you know, and especially in the 90s when, when, when I was growing up, I mean, that, that idea existed. And I think it influences you and you can't really articulate these things into words. And then once you start intellectualizing them with these concepts, and I've had this discussion with a lot of immigrants as well, where it's like, you know, when there's something that's racist, but you can't like explain it to someone else who doesn't know, but you as a person of color knows it right away. Yeah, you experience it. Yeah, exactly. So when we talk about systemic discrimination, I do want to start right at the beginning, and I think that's important. This has become a major concept in the culture now, and I think a lot of people still don't understand what it means, and I see it being misused as well. So in, in your mind, what is systemic discrimination? Because I think people understand racism, I think they understand swastikas and overt discrimination, but a lot of people freeze up around this idea of systemic discrimination or systemic racism. So how would you define it? 
<laughs> the easy questions for me, Mo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just the super easy, you know, yeah. rattle them What off. is systemic racism? <laughs> and I guess I should start with the caveat that I'm not uh, like a certified expert on racism. You're going to be right now. <laughs> we're going to certify you. Okay. But no, I, fair enough. Understood. But um, I, I guess I would define systemic racism and, and institutional racism, structural discrimination, those types of things as... Um, the ways in which our institutions are created and their functions without individual impact. So their policies throughout um, that create inequality in um, opportunities for racialized people or people from different backgrounds. So it's baked right into the system. And I think it's not, uh, it's tough because when, you know, I'm in some of these institutions where because we live in Canada, right? So most of our institutions, if not all of them, are rooted in some structural discrimination. Um, so I find that um, a lot of the time what I've been running up into is intent. And people are like, well, I didn't mean to be racist. And, right. and it wasn't our intention. And I think that you're not going to find it in intent, but where you'll find it is in outcomes. Mm -hmm. When you see disproportionate amounts of Indigenous uh, kids in foster care, when you see like minimal percentage of high-level academia um, success rates for the Black and Indigenous communities, mm -hmm. when you see um, 150 years, for example, without a, a member of parliament from the Black community in BC. Right. What we, we see these outcomes and we don't think about how we got here. Like people haven't been trying to improve the status of their group and people. Um, but I think that it's, it's those aspects. And that's why it's really difficult to combat it is because you, you don't always see it and you can't always point it out directly. And so it takes a, an amount it's messy. of it's messy and you have to educate <laughs> the people involved as well yeah. because the system has created a way where, you know, the majority of leadership in any institution or business is predominantly white male mm -hmm. um, and they've benefited from this system. And, you know, it's, it's almost to no fault of their own, yeah. right? So th to them, they don't always see it. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's. It's interesting to me because one of the pushbacks you'll get, particularly from like right-wing intellectuals, quote-unquote, is, oh, well, how come Asian Americans or Asian Canadians or South Asian Canadians do so well? Like, clearly it's not racist. And then it's like, yeah, but you're comparing model minorities, people who immigrated here based on their professional status, based on meeting certain criteria like the cream of the crop from where they're coming from, you're comparing them to the black and indigenous community, the entire, the general population, right? Which just isn't, it's not fair. <laughs> like it's, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I think there's structural aspects to it as well, right? Um, thinking of the South Asian community here in BC, I'd say the majority of it is from Punjab in mm -hmm. India. And so, you know, there's a shared language for a large part of shared culture, yes. um, perhaps a shared religion, things that form community somewhat naturally. And they've They're been, not facing that cultural erasure well, in the same way. Well, they might be facing cultural erasure, but they aren't facing um, difference even just amongst their group. When mm. we look at, um, you know, the diaspora of, uh, of Black Canadians, we have people coming from <laughs> all over Africa, the Caribbean, America, right. 
And there, there's different religions, different languages, different cultures. And so it's really hard to say, to, to try and, and I think that this is a problem that the government runs into is how do we address an issue for a group that's so vast in its um, beliefs and its opinions and, and do it in a, in a way that's going to benefit everybody. Yeah. But when we look at um, Asian communities, there's sometimes less of that uh, difference amongst the groups. And I think that that gives them the ability to thrive. And you see it in, um, in Canadian society when you look at communities, mm -hmm. right? And we can say, okay, there's a Chinatown here or there's a little India here. But where do we look for, you know, um, Africville, <laughs> sure, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and uh, for... I, I find so much of Canadian black history is erasure and, and Africville was torn down and turned into an off-leash dog park in Nova Scotia right. and Hogan's Alley here in, in Vancouver was torn down turned and, into viaducts. and turned into viaducts. And so now we have our community all spread out all over the place yeah. and nowhere to convene. And when we do convene, we're being over-policed and, and facing all these structural issues. So it's kind of a, we're caught in a cycle. When we look at this idea of systemic discrimination, and I think this is one of the hurdles that, that people get stuck on when they're new to the concept, do you see it as we're all collectively guilty because we're all part of the system? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we're, we're all guilty in a sense because we're, like you said, we're all part of the system. And, uh, but it, it's really tough because the system isn't saying that we're doing anything wrong. Right. So I don't want people to think like we're guilty and we should feel bad and ashamed of ourselves. It's, mm -hmm. um, it's kind of just like we just talked about. We didn't crystallize these ideas until university. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there, it takes um, some time and, and uh, reflection to start to observe some of the structural inequities and then saying, okay, well, how can I help in trying to reduce these barriers that have been created? Yeah. I like to look at it akin to climate change, where we're all collectively guilty, but me individually as a consumer, there's only so much I can do. Like, I'm still reliant on buying products made by fossil fuels, yeah. right? So me, myself, there's, there's a limited thing that I can do, but when we looked at the structure as a whole, and yes, it's grandiose and it requires major reform, but that's how we can actually make the changes necessary to live in a world that's actually combating climate change. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we have <laughs> so to. So it's do like, it. yeah, you're not going to sit around being like, "Oh man, I'm guilty of first degree climate change or I'm this <laughs> terrible person." But then it opens you up to looking at policy and looking at the way our culture is organized and looking at ways we can change it in a structural level. Exactly. Right? So that's what that's the one that's the one way I like to sort of make people think about it because a lot of people get really weird when you say systemic racism. I, I mean, there was reports recently about healthcare in British Columbia being systemically racist against Indigenous people, and I've talked to a few people about it, just friends and and, and people in my life, and they go, "Well, I know a lot of nurses and doctors, and they're not racist." And it's like, "No, no, no, it's not." That's not the point. <laughs> yeah. No, it isn't at all. It's it's looking at those outcomes in healthcare where we have indigenous mm -hmm. people, you know, um asking for help and being denied help in yeah. those institutions where we have 
why are they treated differently than someone yeah. else? So yeah. many uh, tragic incidences in healthcare, especially recently, a really troubling report out of Kitimat that is just unfathomable. But when we look at it, um, I, I think it'll be really interesting now that they're starting to investigate it and they're starting to put light into what's been going on into the institutions. And mm -hmm. it's so important that they come to understanding what the root of that problem is when it comes to Indigenous care. Mm -hmm. But I think that we also have to um, look out for all the other groups that are experiencing it as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Where do we see systemic discrimination? We sort of touch on healthcare right now. In terms of your understanding, where do we see it in our society? In, in all of our institutional outcomes. <laughs> in the outcomes. So right? can you give me some examples? Yeah. Or, and just give the listeners some examples so they can kind of understand what, what you mean. Yeah, I, I guess um, the fact that we don't teach racialized histories in Canada is a great example. The outcome is that we don't learn about the intergenerational trauma and the the genocide that took place here in Canada towards our Indigenous people. And so then we have people um, <laughs> looking at the Indigenous community saying, how did how did it end up like this? Mm. And how did and not understanding anything <laughs> in between, but not acknowledging the fact that it was created like this. We were made vulnerable um, Black and Indigenous people. When I say we, uh, it, it it happened through legislation. Mm -hmm. You know, there were head taxes. Uh, there was 200 years of slavery in, in pre-Confederation Canada and, and hundreds of years of, um, of devastation to our Indigenous communities. So now we have our outcomes where we're trying to come out of that. Um, but, you know, just looking at universities and stuff like that, where, where we see... Um, low enrollment from these vulnerable groups mm -hmm. and it's it's not because black and indigenous people um aren't capable but we're not geared towards it and there's information coming out of ontario about the way that counselors were tracking black students into lower level education i that mm -hmm. happened to me i have uh, i i have um i live with disabilities i learn differently but I'm still able to learn the concepts that just might take me more time mm -hmm. or it might take a different approach. But instead of saying, okay, uh, you can do this, it was, no, you're going to go into essentials math and, oh, you're an athlete. You're going to be on the varsity volleyball team, uh, take human kinetics. Right. <laughs> no way you're going to be really interested in philosophy and political science. Right. Those types of things. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like 2020 was a big shift in terms of the anti-racism dialogue. A long-awaited shift. I mean, these are not new ideas that, that we're discussing, but there did seem to be a collective awakening in the mainstream. Do you think it was just a confluence of COVID and George Floyd and Trump? Because I think we've almost gotten to a place where if you deny systemic racism, it's like denying climate change. Yeah, I think it was a, a it's been a big mix of all those things that you mentioned and um you know, it took a pandemic. It took us all stopping work and stopping our normal in our normal lives. You know, we interrupt your programming. Yeah. <laughs> um and and people started to see those systemic inequities and I think that a lot of people felt that now they are being marginalized in a sense or at least discriminated against and so it's it's opening 
people's eyes to some of the inequities that have been created in our society. So it's a it's a big opportunity, I think, um, but it'll only go as far as those in power will take it. I just thought from my vantage point that the shift was actually quite rapid, where this idea of systemic racism was very much mainstream. I don't know how much it existed before. It might have existed in our circles, but just as a mainstream concept, I thought it, it became very new. And that's also why I think some people, they might accept it or say, okay, yeah, but they don't. They still don't understand it because it happened so fast that we started talking about this. Yeah, it, it was a whirlwind. You know, the summer was wild. Very yeah. little sleep <laughs> in the summer. <laughs> um, so many, so much attention and so many voices and so much happening. And um, I think that the momentum is still being felt today. Um, I know last year for February in Black History Month, um, it's always a lot for, I think, the Black community. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, this this year, it seemed really heightened. And we're seeing it in, in our media, in different outlets, and in our, in our governments at all different levels, trying to take an active effort and contributing to it, which is interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. Did you see 2020 as cultural progress? or as maybe a wasted opportunity. And I ask this because, and I've expressed this on the show before, my biggest fear was that people would put up the black square, they would vote out Trump, and then sort of delude themselves into thinking like, oh yeah, racism is done now. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like There is a performative aspect to it, which is fine because symbols are important. But my fear is that all the stuff that was brought up in 2020, particularly around George Floyd, around BLM, we're going to lose that momentum. That's a strong fear. And I know when it was happening in the summer and it was so much focused attention, it like for myself, I felt um, really cautious about like, is this real? Is this happening? Because it's like um, the whole world got flipped upside down and the people who are typically put at the lowest end of the priority list are now at the top. Mm -hmm. And I think that since the summer, that prioritization has gone down a little bit, but um, it's still there. It's still front and center. We still have our voice. We're still being asked to do interviews. We're still pushing for systemic changes and we're being carried through uh, or, or those demands or asks are being picked up by those in power. So. I think 2020, it, it did have an, um, the, this huge wave in the summer. So I don't know if the whole year was a wasted opportunity. I think we're still living it. Yeah. Um, for example, uh, there was a statement that came out from the BC School Trustees Association this month that was, it was monumental, you know. Um, the BC Community Alliance sent a delegation to the Burnaby School Board's trustees meeting asking for them to adopt basically our calls to action in our petition mm -hmm. um, to incorporate Canadian Black history, to provide anti-racism training for all staff and students alike, mm -hmm. um, to create a database to track incidences of racism so that we can find ways to, to intervene and to prevent them in the future and to learn and to scope. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, in the summer, one of those trustees said, we're not just going to answer this question we're going to turn it into a motion here on the floor. <laughs> so oh, okay. I was watching the meeting and I, I was on Zoom. I had to run, put on a, a nice shirt. They're like, can, can, can Mark Hill come on and speak to this? <laughs> like, okay. And then I go on and yeah, it was amazing. And so the Burnaby School Board 
um, brought that resolution to the BC School Trustees Association. And mm. now all 60 school boards in the province, at least their representatives and trustees, have said these are things that we are going to lobby the provincial government for because we want it. So um, sometimes things take time, but yeah. they're still happening. And keeping that momentum takes work. And that's where it is. Like, obviously, there's this uprising, this outrage. And you don't want progress only to be made every time there's a viscerally upsetting video like the George Floyd video, right? And when I was talking to Nadia Stewart, who's a journalist at Global BC, but also part of the CABJ, mm -hmm. Canadian Association for Black Journalists, you know, she was kind of saying like, oh, suddenly everyone's tune changed after after George Floyd, you know, they had these calls to action as well. Didn't get a lot of traction with some of the big media outlets. And then suddenly that happened. And now there's a lot more interest. And I think keeping up that interest is so important. And again, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to chat with you because you're out there doing it. You're making sure it's in the news. You're making sure you're getting people's attention and you're getting people engaged with it. And I think it does take a lot of work because we can't just be reliant on the most grave, upsetting situations to get us to think about these things. Yeah, absolutely. When we live in a world that is um, systemically racist, undoing that takes an immense uh, amount of work. And not only for myself, but you know, there's thousands of people across the country who are sharing in this work and, and trying their best. And um, it's, it's exhausting, it's taxing, but it has to be done. So we, we continue going. But mm -hmm. it's amazing, you know, like, we all have full-time jobs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it's, you know, we were at our full-time job and, oh, can you hop onto an interview on your lunch break or your coffee break and um, coming home after work and then working another five hours in community organizing, talking to people across the country, different people of various levels of government. Um, so it is, it's, it's difficult, but um, it, it's got to be done, so. And I think aside from the actual labor, aside from the actual work, there is an emotional labor involved that I don't think gets appreciated as well because you're dredging up a lot of stuff. And when you're out there on the front lines and you're trying to explain things to people, it can seemingly get very taxing. I mean, I mean, I imagine it does, right? Just on yeah. an emotional level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're for myself, uh, you know, a lot of the time I might be sharing some personal stories because that's what's going to resonate with people. Or I'm speaking about um, <laughs> racist bomb threats that take place and the harm that's being done to students and trying to keep in mind. Does that happen in BC? So sorry to interject. I actually don't know. Which? Racist bomb threats? Oh, yeah. That's how the BC Community Alliance was formed. It was formed out of this tragic racist bomb threat um, in 2018 at Lord Bing Secondary. Really? Okay. So yeah. what happened there? Uh, well, there was a 15-year-old student and um, he made a video on, was it Snapchat or something like that, that got circulated. And uh, it was uh, a white student and he came on the camera and he says, he starts out and this is what, uh, this is what systemic racism, this is a great example. Uh, he starts out by saying he hates all N-words, referring to black people. Um, he hates them. And they're stinky and they're stupid. And I just and he says he just wants to line them all up and chuck an explosive at them and watch them go kaboom. Whoa. Yeah. So that incident is the definition of a hate crime. 
Yeah. To the letter. 100%. Yeah. You know? That is overt. He, he, he expresses that it's founded in hate. Yeah. He identifies a group. He says that he wants to essentially kill that entire group. Yeah. And for that student, there's been virtually no recourse. And so that's what the BC Community Alliance... Nothing happened out of that for that student? Like... N- not... So the... I mean, that's, that's criminal. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Whether he did it or not, it's, it's criminal. Well, exactly. It, and it doesn't come down to his intent. The criminality doesn't come down to his intent, whether he had the resources to do it or not. Yeah. It's, I, I believe, section 318 through 320 of Canada's criminal code. You read it and it's to the letter, the definition of a hate crime. Yeah. And so there was, first of all, there was no communication to the parents of the school that this happened. One of the students brought it to their parents, and then the parents had to bring it to the administrators. The administrators did not provide any support to those families, to those students. They let some of the students go home alone um, on the bus without informing their um, parents about what had happened. And, and um, they, they let the perpetrator kind of off the hook until... Um, parents came back and community advocates came back and said like this is terrible like you need to have some way to discipline this child or to re-educate him um to to make things better here and it it incorporates a whole bunch of different things and actually the bc community alliance is currently we have a human rights tribunal case in um on this issue but this one incident touches on um our schools, our ministries, our administrators, and the police department. Um, because, you know, the, the schools have school liaison officers, police officers in schools. And this police officer um, didn't do an investigation with the parents, and the parents were, were reaching out What's to... What's he there for then? <laughs> well, and, and that's a whole other thing, <laughs> is like the memorandum of understanding between the Vancouver School Board and the Vancouver Police Department says he's not actually supposed to be doing um, emergency responses and stuff like right, that. Right, but if but, there's a criminal well, activity... Yeah, and he was, I, I believe, one of the, the, the leads on the investigation, which led to what I take to be a, a biased opinion formed about the student. Because from what I've gathered, um, and and this is officially, it's just what I've heard, but basically that the SLO said... The student liaison officer. The student yeah. liaison officer, um, after performing a really short investigation, not really talking to the parents, not talking to the students in meaningful ways, and, and leaving them out of the loop on the whole incident, um, basically said to the the chief of police like you know the the kid's a good kid and and he didn't mean it right and so we shouldn't be recommending charges and so we actually went to the office of the police complaint commissioner because the police did issue like a statement and they said well we did things like we espoused the criminal justice act or i'm blanking on the name of the youth criminal justice act and it's it's but the Youth Criminal Justice Act was designed for incidents that were nonviolent in nature, right? It, it's if somebody went and stole um, something from a convenience store, yeah. you know, and, and okay. threats are very much violence. Yeah. And, and in their report, the police said, you know, we can't 
do anything here because every time that there's a hate crime, we'll have to do something different. And, and it'll take too many resources. So we issued a, a report. I remember it was like 5,000 words to the OPCC and they agreed. And so we took that back to the Vancouver Police Board and the Vancouver Police Board rejected the Vancouver Police Department's initial complaint and, and they had to go back and they changed some of their language. But it, it's, um, it's really difficult because from our point, we only get these one, two opportunities, right? So they can issue their next report and it might be accepted, but we can't rebut that and we can't go in further. Yeah. So it's it's tragic, but yeah, that kind of stuff happens here in BC. And um, the example you just gave is excellent in terms of showing there's this overt racism, racist act that I think people can understand like that's racism. But then understanding how the institutions respond to that mm -hmm. and how they would have responded if it was, you know, the same sort of thing, but not directed at perhaps black students. That I think is important in sort of understanding this idea of systemic racism, right? Exactly. Because I think, I mean, I would be, uh, there's no way that if it was to the general student populace, a threat of bombing them or killing them or whatever, people would just brush that under the rug of like, oh, it's a good kid, whatever. Or in the other circumstance, if it was a black student or an indigenous student mm -hmm. making that threat, mm -hmm. right? How would they be treated then? So so that's an excellent example of, of systemic racism and one that, to be honest, I, I mean, I'll plead ignorance. I was not familiar with that case, but it goes to show that it's still here. And there is this like ignorance that like, oh, we're not like the States. We're, you know, we're, we have a multicultural society. <laughs> These things don't happen here. Yeah. And it shows the unwillingness of our institutions to protect the most vulnerable people, vulnerable people, the people that they've made vulnerable, yeah. right? Is, um, <laughs> and we're going to be stuck with this problem until we have leaders who are willing to take it head on. Um, and, uh, the the spike in anti-Asian hate crimes is a great example, right? Um, typically, like you were saying, um, the Asian community doesn't face as much discrimination, although they do certainly sure, face absolutely. discrimination. Yeah. Uh, but it isn't so overt. It isn't so violent. It isn't um, so every day. And, and everybody's saying 716% increase. Like, where is the accountability from the police? Mm -hmm. And... Where do we set the precedent? Yeah. <laughs> so now people are looking. They're like, and and even John Horgan just said the other day he wants to see prosecutions for these types of incidences. And um, we're not saying that we want. And this is this is also a problem of our institutions. Is we're not saying that we want the student who per, who perpetrated this hate crime to be negatively impacted for the rest of his life, based off of. There has to be action. There there, there has, has to, to be, be action. Something. There has to be action. But it's it's not like. Um, the current mechanisms that we have. And that was a fear of the police, I believe, is, you know, we could charge him and that could really ruin the rest of his life. And, you know, when you charge a minor, depending on the incident, that record, I believe, is um, absolved at age of 18. But um, what that says to us and what we said to them is, well, then you need to come up with a new way for this incident right here. Mm -hmm. And what it calls for in the Youth Criminal Justice Act is it calls for the Attorney General to help create this incident. So what we want is we want to see David Eby, the Vancouver Police, the BCCA, other community stakeholders come together 
and say, okay, when a serious incident of hate takes place and we need to protect students forever so that this doesn't happen again, mm -hmm. we need to look at how we got here, why we didn't have protocols in place to deal with these types of incidents in the first place and take strong action to correct that and yeah. to make the system better, right? We can, one of the, one of the things, do you, they said in their report, they said he went, the student went and lived with an, with an African-American for a week in the States and did a self-education plan. A self-education plan? Yeah, he volunteered. That's oh. what the police said. Well, since the student volunteered to teach himself, then we, we thought that was sufficient. And who is the we that thought that that was sufficient? Is it the majority of police that are, that are black and understand <laughs> right. the lived experience of how this could? No. It's, again, those people at the top, presumably um, white people with a lot of privilege and a lack of experience in facing hate who are saying, that should do. <laughs> we don't want to charge him. That That's crazy. Yeah. When really he should be charged and we should have a really great way to deal with this incident and we shouldn't have the, the students from Lord Bing having to leave the school, mm -hmm. right? We shouldn't have to have community groups filing human rights complaints. We should have administrators dedicated to protecting their students. We should have police um, who understand that the impacts that this have and, and want to seriously mitigate them long-term. And we should have um, attorney generals motivated into action to, yeah. to help and say, okay, if, if you're not going to do it, we will. Yeah. When we look at all of this work that has to be done and we understand that, you know, institutions are slow moving sometimes. It's like turning around a battleship, right? Yeah. You can't just pull a U-turn. <laughs> From your vantage point, I mean, you're on the front lines of your advocacy work. Are we seeing institutional progress? Are we seeing the, the will of these institutions, particularly government, to start to change? I think we're seeing a shift in language. We're yet to see firm shift in legislation, in policy, in, in direct action. Um, Canadian Black History is a great example. I, I'm super grateful that... Um, our, our leaders at the provincial government have acknowledged our work and are saying like, yes, we want to espouse those themes as well. Um, but we haven't gotten that in writing. <laughs> right. We haven't gotten that letter saying, you know, um, and, and when we do see it in writing, it becomes more ambiguous. Um, yeah, we want to create more anti-racism programs and stuff for the black. Well, why do we have Black History Month? Because we refuse to teach <laughs> black history. We're refusing to teach um the truth and we're, we're, we're steeping our society in the myths that we've been accustomed to learn for several generations that people who went to school who are in power now, they learned those myths. Yeah. And so we have to first do all the unlearning and then the re-educating. And um, I think until we see proactive steps taken to bring in comprehensive legislation that was founded in community where all the knowledge is, all the answers are there, Yeah. right? We've been working on this for decades, exactly. right? I'm yeah. not the first person, BCCA isn't the first group to, to push these themes. The, the ideas are out there, the professionals are out there. We've, we've assembled a, a large group of them willing to do the work. Mm -hmm. But until the government says, okay, we have all the resources, we have the dollars to get this done, and we really want to, and we want to have a, 
a relationship long term with these communities so that we can take part in healing, we're not going to see it. And it's also but it sounds like you're saying that they've said that, but they haven't like put it into actual legislative. Yeah, action. and they haven't even gone that far. They've said like, yeah, these issues are kind of important, and and we want and <laughs> we want to do them. But that they really take on the anti-racism uh, lens, and I think that that can that can get lost in our actual asks, right. where it's like we want like it's like a database for racism. How do we do that? Well, you just start tracking it. Yeah. A pen and paper, you could start that way at a school sure. and, and then everybody could upload it to an Excel and obviously that wouldn't fit government <laughs> standards, but we can start, yeah. right? And, and, and we can come up with ways really quickly and I think that we're going to see more of that when we see people from those marginalized groups with lived experience um, in, in positions of power because we hear the term a lot... Um, evidence-based decision-making, sure. right? But I really think that on top of evidence-based, we need experience-based mm. decision-making, right? The evidence might say on a map to get from one side of the country, you should go this way. But then the person who's walked through it and has experience might say, you could go that way. You'll get to the other side of the country, but it's a lot easier if you go this way. Trust me, I've been there. Right. There's, there's 50 more rivers this way and 25 more mountains. Like, let's go around. Right. <laughs> We'll get into the Black History Month stuff in just a little bit, but but I want to ask you this one question. One place where I have seen, at least I can perceive, some institutional movement is how the culture, how institutions are finally looking at white supremacist, far-right fringe groups as the real danger that they pose. And I feel like for a very long time, there was an underbelly that existed, that was there. But as someone in the public, I just didn't feel like the lens was on them mm -hmm. in terms of watching what they were doing and clamping down on it. Do you feel like there, there has been more of a shift towards clamping down on a lot of these groups, these fringe extremist hate groups? I, I think that we're, we're seeing effort from some people to move towards that, you know? Um, I know that the federal NDP have been doing a lot of work on that subject, and thank goodness they are mm -hmm. um, pushing to raise the issue and also um, try and find ways to to mitigate future assaults and and uh, problems. But directly, like here at home, you know, we see white supremacist posters everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> we see yeah. white supremacist groups gathering and and doing this and that and what's the follow-up? If you're not going to follow up for a hate crime to the letter and the bomb threat, and you're not going to respond to a 700% increase in hate crimes, mm -hmm. how are you saying that you're equipped to take on your uncle? Right. And you're going to get personal with it. Yeah. And you're going to say, you know what? I've been upholding a lot of this problem and espousing a lot of the problems myself. And... um the people that are are white supremacists and stuff we i might know some of them but they're not bad people right so i think they're it's just a little kooky <laughs> yeah they're, they're just you know he's he's just stuck in his ways that's what he was taught and and so uh ignorance isn't a defense in in, in the court of law i don't think <laughs> yeah and i know that hate groups are like the extreme example, they are, you know, sort of the most obvious thing that we can look at because 
when you have certain groups, if they are, for example, you know, extremist Muslim groups, right? I'm all for clamping down on them. But what about these other extremist white groups or white supremacist groups? You know, are they getting the same attention? Are they getting the same police scrutiny? It's a double standard. And I think that double standard, like I said, this is an extreme example in terms of looking at these fringe groups, but my irritation with, with the culture, with institutions, with, le- with the legal system is that there is an inherent double standard. Some people get a free pass and others, you know, they're out before they're up to bat. You can look at media. Like, there's no reason that Rex Murphy should be a talking head in Canada. Like, he's so out of touch. He's terrible. I don't understand, mm-hmm. even just on a business level, like, who is his growing demographic? Don Cherry is a name that comes up, too. And I remember I heard after that debacle, like, oh, well, you know, Don Cherry's problem was he didn't keep up with the culture. And it's like, yeah, no shit, he didn't keep up with the culture. But he could have still kept his job if he apologized. And I, there's this double standard that I feel exists. And one of my gripes, and, and people will say why I'm complaining about it, but where are the provocateurs who are people of color for mainstream outlets? And I'm saying this as someone who does have two editorial spots in this city. Mm-hmm. I'm annoying or pissing people off on the radio, in my podcast, in print, on a weekly basis, I'm sure. But I'm not a provocateur, like I'm more of a, a populist and there's already people calling me angry, which is a weird <laughs> label. But, you know, once you have a black or indigenous person who comes up and says, hey, let's defund the police, suddenly you got this response like, whoa, 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 this is a family program, man. You can't say <laughs> defund the police. <laughs> like, that's extreme. That's too provocative. But people who espouse white supremacy are in mean- mainstream outlets. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, and what you just said was really thought-provoking for myself. Um, and I was, I, I have ADHD as well, so my brain was firing. So I'll try and <laughs> I'll try and gather my thoughts here. But I think what it comes down to is, at its core, upholding white supremacy is what our institutions have always existed for, mm-hmm. right? Residential schools, and I might be getting the quote wrong. It was to um, take the Indian out of them, right? <laughs> and so, um, and and you see it now with with some leaders is okay. Let's open the doors. Let's get other people at the table. As long as they're acting just like us, <laughs> as long as they're going to sound and say the things that we like. Yeah. And and we want to make this the normal forever. Um, and so I think for policing, just to use as an example, is it's always been its function. You know, clear the plains, um, capture escaped enslaved people uh, do these things. It was never to protect them. That was never um, an objective. It was more so to control them. And so I think now when you hear people say, well, this is why we need to defund them so that we can can, um, provide better resources to communities that have been underserved for so long, people say, hold on a second. That's not what we do here. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So, and it's generational and it's going to take time to, um, and it's going to take a lot of allyship and vulnerability from from the groups being impacted and the groups that are empowered to make that change. But I think at its core, it's because that's what our institutions have always been designed to do. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of your advocacy, and you've, you've touched on a lot of it already. 
I also believe that one of the keys to battling racism is to appreciate culture, to appreciate the true richness of, of history. Black history was virtually absent when I went to school. I can't recall learning any sort of black history, maybe touching on like the Underground Railway, but like that's about it. What was your assessment of black history being taught K to 12, particularly in those high school years? in terms of what we were seeing and what we are seeing in BC prior to your advocacy work? Yeah, I think it, um, my experience was kind of what I've come to understand as black history in Canada was erasure. It was, it was like you said, maybe we learn a little bit about the Underground Railroad and Harriet Tubman and, and there was a transatlantic slave trade. Maybe we learn about that, but maybe we learn nothing at all. Yeah. Or we'll learn about, sorry to interrupt, or we'll learn about, you know, Martin Luther King. Yeah. But not the Canadian experience. <laughs> yeah, not the truth, Yeah, right? And I think that that's what's um, really tough for me to understand is we have schools not teaching, you know, like uh, on TV when they say, do you, do you promise or do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? And um, our, our education systems can't say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's such a longstanding issue. I think that we as Canadians don't necessarily know the truth. Um, and even myself, right? I don't know all the Canadian black history or all the mm -hmm. indigenous history and stuff like that, um, but it's been erased. And so this past year and a half, it's been amazing to learn all these, all these elements. You know, we had a civil rights movement here in Canada. We're still having it. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the harms that we see, it's, we're always comparing ourselves to the States, but, it's all happening here. Yeah. You know, everything's happening here. And it might not be as publicly viewable, but, um, and, and, and that's a feature of Canada and the myth that we say that we're, we're a mosaic. And, you know, the, the prime minister, you know, um, diversity is our strength. Diversity is our strength. Whose strength? Because the way in which we're incorporating diversity into our society right now, to me, seems more like exploitation. <laughs> mm. And so um, I think that it can be our strength, but we need to empower those diverse voices and those groups to help make us stronger because we have an incredible opportunity here in Canada. We can show the world how to live in uh, a society that values in meaningful ways people from all over the world, all different backgrounds, different languages. And that's what I love about Canada. Um, but right now we're missing that opportunity. Yeah. We can get so much better. And that's what I think might f frustrate a lot of advocates is like we're trying to help <laughs> and we're getting muted, right? Yeah. And, and it's like maybe some, maybe I, I've been more featured because I can um, code switch and I can come onto an interview and, and speak in a way that might resonate with a group, but other people might speak in different ways. And that doesn't mean that their value is less. It just means that their experience is different and where they're coming at is different. And so I think once we start to appreciate people's differences, the ways and, and, and contextualize where they're coming from and why they're so passionate, yeah, right? When you've been facing oppression your whole life, like, why are you so angry? <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. Sever, why are you so passionate? Why are you so angry? I, yeah. I hate that one. It. I think you brought up a really great point there about Trudeau in particular and this idea of, like, diversity is our strength. But then harking back to your earlier point of, like, yeah, 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 you can come at the table, but you got to agree with us 
entirely almost, yeah. right? And once you have that provocative voice or that voice that's kind of pushing that edge of progressivism or, or, or pushing something that makes people feel uncomfortable, suddenly that's fringe or that's, you know, oh, no, that, that's not really that welcome, right? So it, it, I, I have a lot of issues with Trudeau uh-huh. around his stance around anti-racism because it, it just feels like a marketing tool of, oh, we want your vote, but we don't necessarily want your feedback that is going to make us feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And sorry to interject here, but just looking at outcomes again. Yeah. And we can look at it with the prime minister um, who was found in the last election to have worn blackface on an undetermined amount of times. Yeah. The outcome, people came to support him. Oh, it was because of this. Oh, it was because of that. You know, Trudeau could do no harm. But then at the same time, his parliamentary secretary, his attorney general, these amazing uh, black and indigenous women, Jody Wilson, uh, Jody Wilson Raybould and mm-hmm. uh, Selena Cesar Chavez. I always, I always mess up her last name, <laughs> Chavez, um, are walking away and being pushed out yeah. for trying to do things differently. You know, I, I had the opportunity to go to um, Jody Wilson Raybould's campaign launch last before COVID. And it was a night for independent voices. And I, I, won, I went and I went up to her and I just thanked her. I said, thank you, because what you did standing up to um, corruption and to the highest forms of power in our country makes our country better. Yeah. And we need people like that. Absolutely. And yet, instead of welcoming that and saying, I'm being held to account and I'm a leader and people on my team are saying, I need to lead better and I need to lead differently. You can either say, okay, I will, and I'm going to commit to doing better, and I'm going to keep trying, and I'm going to try and do better. I'm not perfect personally, me (laughs) as an individual, and I make plenty of mistakes. We all do. Right? But then it's either are we going to commit to learning and doing better going forward and working with those people, or are we going to kick them out? Yeah. And and tell them like, oh, you know, this is bad for me. (laughs) Even that blackface incident revelation, I should say, that was such a wasted cultural moment. Obviously, it was coming during an election, so it's going to be politicized, but it's also just this idea of like, and, and people can feel differently about it. I waver whether, you know, he should have resigned or not. I, I can be sort of convinced either way, but I'm just like, if we had a culture where he, if he could openly talk about why he felt compelled as a young man to do blackface so many times that he doesn't even remember how many times he did it, mm-hmm. you know, and just have an honest conversation. But we're not allowed to do that. No, right? like no. The, the consequences of just having that real conversation are, are, are so large. And I'm like, that was the wasted opportunity. Well, and it's completely system, uh, symptomatic of system, uh, s- the systemic racism that we face in Canada, mm-hmm. right? Trudeau's the victim here. Right. <laughs> the, st- the, the student who made the bomb threat, he's the victim. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the way that our institutions hold them to account is, can you believe like he's being called out on this? Yeah. How sad. And, and the refusal to hear from black people about that event. Unbelievable. It was incredible to hear from so many different, and I know you talked about this on that episode with Tanya and, and Manjot. Um, a lot of South Asians came out and it's like, yeah. They, yeah. What do they know about it? They have no connection to what blackface is or the history of blackface. Yeah, exactly. And um, <laughs> I think that, 
you know, I, I haven't forgiven Trudeau. <laughs> I still remember. And, you know, his father created the Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms mm-hmm. and fought for that. And so people are saying, oh, you know, it's his own, you know, it's his privilege. He couldn't have known. Your father created the <laughs> charter. And, and it's one of those things where it's like, if anyone should know, it should be this person <laughs> who has these opportunities of education, clearly, you know, in the orbit of power, clearly in the orbit of recognizing that you're a public figure, or at least come from a public family. It made no sense. And I think it would have been, and I've talked about the show as well, where like, you know, I'm ashamed to admit that as a teenager, I've used the gay slurs or I've mm-hmm. used the ableist slurs, mm-hmm. never against people of those groups, but I used them because mm-hmm. it was kind of condoned, mm-hmm. right? Like you would only very rarely have someone, an adult say like, you can't like, don't say that. Or here's why you can't say that. And I can now look back at it and be like, yeah, that was wrong as a kid. And I was stupid as a kid, more than a blanket apology. I can reflect on here's why I said those things. Right. Because they were just everywhere. Everyone was saying it. They were on TV. Mm-hmm. Right. I didn't know that was offensive. I didn't, I certainly didn't mean it in, in offensive ways. And we lost that opportunity to sit down with the prime minister and be like, why did you feel compelled to wear blackface that as much? Like, what was it? You know, was it, uh, <laughs> was it something that you thought was funny? Oh, look, I have dark skin. Or was it an appreciation of culture? Like, what was going through his head? Mm-hmm. And we couldn't have that conversation. And instead, it was people just being like, let's just move on. This is not about policy. Like, let's talk about policy. <laughs> yeah, and it, it speaks to the priorities, again, in, in our society. Is, well, I imagine, like, what the Black community is feeling. You know, our prime minister wore blackface. <laughs> yeah. And that's not a priority. No. <laughs> I think it's so important to learn history on a holistic level. I mean, history is usually taught in like this idea of like power, who has power, how's power transferred. But like one of the things in seeing you in the media that I learned a lot about was James Douglas, first governor of BC, known as the father of BC. He had black ancestry, first dentist in British Columbia, African-American man who was in Kamloops, William Allen, Allen Jones. Uh, I didn't know these things until I read about you. I didn't know about Hogan's Alley, a black community, as we've talked about, that was displaced by urban projects and the Georgia Viaducts, until I learned that a former professor of mine, Dr. June Francis, who actually wrote me a recommendation letter for my (laughs) master's degree, uh, that what she was and is the chair of Hogan Alley's society. So, like, all these things in our history of our city and our province and our country, it's like I... I was never exposed to this. And I think for me, I've always, what I realized is that once you learn the true rich history of a land, it changes your perspective on current issues. And so I would say growing up, whenever the immigration issue was brought up, it was brought up in this sense of like European ancestry built this place. And okay, yeah, maybe uh, some Chinese folks built the railroad, right? But European ancestry built this place. And so how, as European ancestry people, how much immigration do we allow into this country? And it's like, that view makes sense if you have a myopic understanding of this land, (laughs) right? It doesn't actually make sense once you open it up and see like, oh, there were, there's a rich indigenous history here. There is history from other groups that also were here. 
And that's sort of the importance I see, because you get that, you get that pushback of like, well, what's the importance of teaching black history? If you're interested in it, you'll learn it. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Or we'll, it's, uh, it's incredible. I, I was on a panel yesterday and I, I got a, I got a black history lesson. And I was sitting there and I was getting so excited. I was like, wow, I'm learning so much. It was only like half an hour. Yeah. And I was energized and I thought, wow. And they're talking about architecture throughout Africa, mm. you know, and it's it's amazing to me that our extent to which we we learn about black history is so poor that we think that the pyramids were, <laughs> or some people think the pyramids were built by aliens. Right. Because there's no way an African could have done that. Yeah. <laughs> right? These or, structures that yeah. are thousands and thousands of years older than our most uh, our most highly praised European jewels, you know, um, Roman Roman architecture or um, Stonehenge. And the same right? the same thing with indigenous cultures in the Americas, yeah. the Incas, the Mayans. They built these complex structures that that are coordinated with the skies and the stars and then it's like oh there was some you know alien force or some divinity that like <laughs> as opposed to like empowering these actual people that were that demonstrated a, an understanding of the earth or intelligence you could say that was far different than our quote unquote eurocentric intelligence right yeah we we've been completely devalued and and like i said um in some senses it, it appears to be purposeful yeah. Um, you know, there was a huge group of people invited to help settle BC by James Douglas, who came up from San Francisco, um, freed freed uh, enslaved people or or free people of African descent, and they came and they were industrious and they were involved in uh, politics and they were growing their um, their political and community involvement throughout the area and they started to face more and more and more discrimination so much mm. so that people decided to go back to the states and right. we we still see that here today that history continues today here in BC where now we have uh, a growing black population but it really is in in many ways a revolving door people might move here and they're like I had no idea it was like this I got to go like I I can't put up with this. I don't feel enfranchised. I don't feel a sense of community. I don't know how you do this. Mm. And um, it, if we learned that history, and I think that we would be more cognizant of it and say, okay, well, let's, let's make this a comfortable place for everybody because we can all live with each other. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's just interesting to see kind of where things start off. You know, we learn about the the transatlantic slave trade and, and the underground railroad, like I mentioned. But I only learned this past year that actually like the first uh, European settlers here, uh, the French, they came with uh, a free black man who served as a translator, you know? So our, oh, really? our history, huh. Canadian black history is as old as the history of those of European descent. Yeah, And it's, it's not as old as that of people of indigenous ancestry here who's who are the rightful owners of this land but it's extensive and for us to just and and it boggles my mind when i hear it from the ministry because the news media asks them right they're like so what do you do it well we we already do have black history here we teach about the slave trade and the underground railroad yeah (laughs) 
And <laughs> how much of that is black history and how much of that is actually um, white history? Right. That's the history of which you interacted with us and you subjugated yeah. us to centuries of exploitation, abuse, and genocide. And um, <laughs> I don't know how that relates so much to black history and, our, and ways that you're going to make people feel valued in their society and mitigate racism. Mm -hmm. Instead, you have 15-year-olds saying, yeah, you're right, they, do, they don't have any value. Right. Right. This is this is how it's always been here. Yeah. Right. So it, it's disheartening, but I, I'm hopeful for the future. I'm grateful for uh, the governments right now taking the lead there. Like I said, uh, all 60 school districts are on board. We're getting the positive messaging from the government. We're getting recognition from the premier. So the right things are happening. Mm -hmm. But it, it's just really difficult, I think, when you've always lived in the uh, feeling disenfranchised yeah. like it's a really hopeless feeling <laughs> and i think as you said like the the knowledge the expertise is there and it must be very frustrating to it's nice to get that acknowledgement and like okay we're committed to it but it's like we have everything ready to go like let's start moving you know what i mean so i can understand that i want to ask you about black history month in particular, as, as just as a non-Black person, I'm a bit mixed on it because on one hand, I value the collective appreciation of the lived Black experience, right? The collective appreciation for all of February, people are focused on that, that's great. But then on the other hand, I feel like Black history should be weaved into history as opposed to being segmented off as its own. And even when I was going through school thinking of Indigenous history now, it was very much segmented off mm -hmm. as opposed to weaved into the overall narrative. So w what is your feeling on like Black History Month? And, you know, is the eventual goal to not have that, but to have it more holistically weaved in? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, because I think um, Black History Month means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Um, and it's I don't think that my answer is going to be reflective of no, and that's fair. But yeah. I'm asking for you because you're you're an advocate for Black history in schools. So, mm -hmm. what is the vision there? Well, my thought is is um, you know any month that's for a racialized group or like like if we had White History Month, I think what it does is it others them. Yeah, right. It says well, and and it and it also speaks to the refusal of our institutions to to actually incorporate it into history. Because yeah. like I said, that's the truth. The truth is we've been here just as long as everybody else who settled this land since day one. Yeah. And we helped since day one. <laughs> and so um, it's, it's incredible to me that we have to have Black History Month and that people are like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. We'll make the Black community do all the work and do all the programming and we'll do it all in a month so that everybody can be equally as overwhelmed. And the shortest month. Yeah, and the shortest <laughs> month, which is, <laughs> which is a whole other thing. But like for myself, um, February last year, honestly, was the first time, and this was pre-pandemic, that I really took part in Black History Month. And I went out to events and I was meeting people and it was so nice yeah. to feel community and hear from so many different voices. People were flying in from all across the country. I met um, Dr. Fua Cooper from Nova Scotia, an amazing historian. I met Desmond Cole. Mm. Um, so like those things are great, but 
uh, I'm finding it's exhausting. You know, we have so many groups who like putting on these programs and these events, it doesn't just come all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. It's planning for months and months and months in advance up until this. And then there's five events every day and you know you're not going to be able to make it to each one even though they're all meaningful. Um, so at one sense, you feel like you're missing out. You feel a little bit exhausted because you're also trying to do a lot and keep up. And um, I think at the end, you feel like you need a recharge. Yeah. It was like, whoa, that's a lot that just happened. <laughs> and I need to take a breath now. And so I think that it's, um, it's not fair, <laughs> really, for any group to do that. Um, it's better if we incorporate our, our, our true histories into our systems. And I don't want to say that not having Black History Month is a goal. That's not, that's not on my agenda. Right. Um, maybe one day Black History would be so incorporated, people might say, why do we have Black History Month? That would be incredible. Yeah. <laughs> but So, like, good for right now, but not the end destination. Well, it, it is right now, I guess I say. I don't know if it's good or bad. <laughs> yeah, fair. In some ways, I think it's important um, that we have it and that there's some acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. um, but... I think just as much as it speaks to the acknowledgement, it speaks to the lack of acknowledgement from government, right? Yeah. Um, the, the Ministry of Education here in BC doesn't formally recognize Black History Month. So, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I so didn't realize that. I think the province does, and I think, and but that was more recent than the, the country. But yeah, it's not like it's in every school board's agenda. You know, this is Black History Month. Oh, it, it's wow. totally up to them. And so we have people lobbying in all different school boards for this. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, you know, some school boards have really bad anti-Black racism problems, uh, Vancouver being one of them. But, you know, just a few years ago, there was a slave day in um, out in the Fraser Valley. There was... Uh, yeah. slave day? What yeah, does that mean? They were, you know, like, uh, I never lived it, but I seen on TV where they're like, oh, we're going to auction somebody to help you out for the day. But instead of like calling it that, they, they called it Slave Day. And I believe some people were wearing blackface and stuff Whoa. like that. They had people crawling on the floor. Wow. Yeah. And so <laughs> we see this in, in the schools and it's getting lights being shed on these issues years later. Because yeah. nobody found it to be that big of an issue at the time, really. Yeah. It's it's that embedded into our institutions that like these huge, massive problems happening in our lifetimes, not long ago, months ago, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's tough. Well, I, I can appreciate that. And I think that makes your work even more important. We are We are way over time, but I have to ask you this one last question. I want to talk about the defund the police movement, because I think the idea of defund the police is actually more of a spectrum that people fall into. <laughs> and I think that most people in cities in particular believe that police institutions need reformation of some sort. Maybe that maybe they don't, but I, I, I get that feeling from my circles, right? Depending, and that's why I say it's a spectrum. From your vantage point, you're a community advocate, You've obviously talked about the police presence in schools through these liaisons. What sort of structural changes in law enforcement need to be done to meaningfully address 
systemic racism, both within the police force and then how police interacts with people of color, black and indigenous people. How big is the structural change needed? All the easy questions for me, Mo. <laughs> I know. And, and, like, and the question where I'm like, we got to wrap it up. But no, no, take your time. Take your time because you are a community advocate. And, and so I want to shed light on this in terms of what you think. Uh, and I'll just speak personally because I'm not the leader in that movement. Um, but I think that at the core of it is that we're seeing hundreds of millions of dollars going into policing communities. And when we look at those outcomes again, and that's where we see systemic racism, um, particularly black and indigenous communities are being over-policed, they're being stopped, they're being murdered, they're being harassed. They're, we Just yesterday at, a, at an anti-Kinder Morgan pipeline expansion protest, we see indigenous youth, amazing indigenous youth being thrown to the ground by the Vancouver Police Department, being pulled on by their hair, and being treated horribly. Um, so we see these disproportionate outcomes in, in incarceration rates. And, mm. and, uh, and so there's communities that say, this is um, alienating. It makes us feel other. I've been stopped three times by police because they thought that I stole my own car. Um, wow. Every black person in my family has been negatively impacted by the police for yeah. no reason of their own. And it's been proved time and time again um, that it was nothing that they did. <laughs> it was everything that the police did. And so I think that one thing is, um, and, and it's overflowing now into the school liaison officer conversation, is there's a dialogue happening from the most marginalized and oppressed who, whose lives are literally on the line. And then there's people who feel protected by it because they're fearful, maybe, of Black and Indigenous people for whatever reason, that they feel like, oh, but they're our, they're our lifeline, they're our protection. They're the ones that we call when we see you gathering outside playing basketball at 11. <laughs> right. You know? And so um, there's this push and pull. But I think in general, the whole sense is take away money <laughs> incrementally and start siphoning it into programs that are going to help communities thrive, mm -hmm. you know, um, and to... And there's, there's also the fact that police are policing laws that are unjust, right? It's like um, the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. We're spending so much money marginalizing people um, and, and tackling hard drugs, but it's like before the, the criminal- poor, We should say poor people, right? Like yeah. in the sense that they're not- Yeah, that's true. They're not going to uh, downtown penthouses and, and busting up Coke parties, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And it's like, well, even the roots of hard drugs, it was like, it's not like these things didn't exist before, at least yeah. the ingredients. But when we criminalized them, we created these hard drugs. Mm -hmm. People used to smoke opium. Yeah. And, and you know, like, uh, it was more sustainable. But now, oh, it's a crime. So, okay, it's going to get siphoned more to the side and the drugs are going to become more and more intense to now where we have just poisonings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so... There's a whole bunch of issues, but I think that people want to see wraparound supports for communities, um, housing, education, mm -hmm. childcare, these, these Canadian values um, being funded instead of um, policing because we've done a bad job at funding those other things, right? right? Yeah. Where are you going to go if you don't have a house? Where are you going to go? Um, <laughs> what, what are you going to... 
it's interesting. I grew up in a low income house, right? I grew up in subsidized housing. And so I've seen it. I've seen my friends go down the wrong paths. And it's just sometimes just luck that you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because we're in, this is, this is the environment that we're in. You're just going to be predisposed to other things or you're living in poverty. You got to make a dollar <laughs> somehow. And um, employers aren't hiring you because of the color of your skin or the way that you talk or something like that. And educational opportunities aren't always being provided to you. So I think that it's shifting the focus from, um, again, the foundation of policing to instead saying the knowledge is in the community. We can deal with this right here. You know, schools are safe places. We can deal with um, bad incidents on our own in ways that aren't going to criminalize people, in ways that are going to help make our community stronger. And so I think that's what's at the core of the Defend the Police movement. So is it about strengthening the social safety net more than reimagining police? Or I'm just trying to put these two, because I, I think a lot of people would agree that the social safety net has to be strengthened. Mm-hmm. We have to start taking care of people, whether that's housing, whether that's mental health services or addiction services, whether that's keep, keeping people alive, you know, mm-hmm. who are vulnerable to the opioids crisis. I think you have a lot of buy-in there. I'm just wondering, is it more actually about that or is it, are we talking about reimagining what policing is? I think it's both. I think it's both. I think it's because it has to be, right? It's not like we're just going to uh, turn off the lights and there's not going to be any police Right. It's going to take time to figure out where it lands. And that's another thing that's kind of different in, in the functions of institutions is they can't be as fluid as the community. Right. Right. It's bureaucracy and there's certain measures that they have to stick to. But I think that we have to reimagine the way that there's policing. Right. Why do we have like every police officer with a gun? And um, it just leads to poor outcomes where a, a cop might be afraid for their life and they might shoot somebody. Mm-hmm. But when, and I, and I work with vulnerable people for government housing, and it's like, if I'm afraid or something like that, I don't have a gun. Right. <laughs> oh, I have to de-escalate the situation. I have to approach it from where they're from. Yeah. And right now there's a staunch power imbalance that's leading to people dying on the streets and uh, being beat up on the streets. So that has to change. And then again, like I said, I live in government housing. We need to fund that more. We need to um, support my, my mother's uh, an addiction recovery counselor who's working in downtown east side for 15 years. And same with my sister. It's kind of the family business now. Sure. <laughs> in, in a sense, is, um, is engaging and, and helping vulnerable people, mm-hmm. people made vulnerable. And um, it's incredible. Like my, the work that my mom's done is incredible. You know, she's told me about times that like somebody's got a, they're in psychosis and, yeah. and they got a chair over top of their head and they're about to throw it. People have died on the streets for less from police, but they're, they're there That's with a scary. chair over top yeah. of their head. My mom's five foot two. She's, she's <laughs> not about to overtake them. And uh, maybe she's five foot four. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> misrepresent She's not as tall her. as you. That's right. That. Yeah. Okay. She's not as tall as me, but she broke through to them. Yeah. And she has a relationship with them. And they know that they don't want to harm them. The person in the house in, in housing knows that they don't want to harm me. And I know that it isn't about me. And we're focused on meeting them with where they're at. And I grew up around drug users and stuff like that. Just from going to 
stay with my mom at her place of work or whatever, or mm-hmm. going around. And we see that humanity in them and that if they were in that, if we were in the same situation, we would want help. We wouldn't want harm. And so I think that for us, we have that lived experience. Like I was talking about um, experience and evidence. Mm-hmm. And I think that like policing, uh, so many of them, majority do not have that experience right. to where they are looking at us as other. You know, it's another month. It's Black History Month. There, it's this. Mm. <laughs> Everything is othering the marginalized, and so they really struggle with um, trying to help them from more of a human, dignified level. You yeah. know, are you going to throw officer, whatever your name is, uh, white officer, whatever your name is, are you going to throw your child to the ground for protesting for the lands that they are the inherent owners of? and the future that they're going to be living? Are you gonna grab them by their hair and throw them to the ground? Are you going to abuse? No, because you don't see them as other. So policing is an issue that I, (laughs) I, I, I wanna see fixed. I don't have all the answers, but I think that it really comes down to just looking at people as human beings and not as others. Yeah, and you might not have all the answers, and that was never the expectation, but I think you are an important voice, Mark Heal. So just as we wrap it up here, what is your call to action to the listener? My call to action is to get vulnerable. If you have privilege, I think it's, a, it's a, it, with great privilege comes great responsibility, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because um, I'm one voice, but I'm kind of here as almost as a disruptor, I guess. <laughs> uh, That's needed. Yeah, and I think it's needed. And and I got into these spaces saying, you know, I want to do things differently and I want to stick to my core values. And if I communicate a little differently, whatever, but it's vulnerable for me. It's vulnerable for other racialized people out there trying to make change mm-hmm. every time that they speak up in a meeting or they're on a panel, those types of things. Um, so we don't have the privilege to sit back and listen and think about it theoretically. We're living it. Yeah. And so if you have privilege, you really need to say, okay, I, I hear you, I see you, and I want to help. And by all means, any means necessary, I want to help. And I know that um, it's going to take a lot of learning from my part, and we're going to make mistakes along the way, but uh, I want to be involved. So my call to action is getting get involved. Get involved with organizations. Donate your time. Donate your money. And um, and get vulnerable. Don't be a bystander. Be a part of the change. Be a part of the active solutions. Listen to the grassroots organizers across the country. And uh, I think we'll get there. I love that. (laughs) Obviously, I'm a big fan of getting vulnerable. And yeah, being uncomfortable, being, you know, understanding that that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. I just want to say, as someone who understands how hard it is to achieve mainstream media attention, although I'm not doing advocacy work, I am totally jealous of you. And I mean that in a sense <laughs> that I admire you. You know, I want to see you do well. I'm a fan. But like you're, and don't take this the wrong way, you're young. I mean, you're, you're 10 years younger than I am and you're so well-spoken for your age and so tuned into these issues. And I also think, you know, provocative, but also quite humble in that, you know, you're not saying that you know everything. But you are pushing that envelope forward. You're pushing that conversation forward. So I can appreciate how hard it is to get engagement in the media 
how hard it is to spark conversation, to get your voice out there, and to try to explain yourself and really complex issues in sound bites, <laughs> you know, in little quotes in print. That's really hard. And I think the work you've been doing is incredible. And I just want to say that, you know, I, I'm a fan and I really hope you do keep up this pace. I know it's a, it's challenging, it's taxing, but I really do hope you continue because I really see you as an important voice in the future. I mean, you got, you grabbed my attention by all the other stuff that you've been doing. And I was just like, I got to talk to you. I got to have this <laughs> conversation. So I just want to leave you with that and just say that Mark Hillman, I really enjoyed this. So, so thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for that, Mo. Um, and, and I want to say I really appreciate you and all the work you've done. I've kind of watched the progress from your show and it's been incredible. And here we are, a, a black man and a, and a South Asian man. Or sure, I, yeah. I think you're from your Pakistani ancestry, correct? You've done your research. <laughs> That's what I like about you. You got uh, the kombucha. <laughs> but here we are talking yeah. to a national audience. And so I think it's really important what you're doing. And uh, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing as best as I can. It is kind of challenging. You know, they want me to talk, smile, and point my toes. But I was a, I was a national level of gymnast when I was a kid. So <laughs> I'm here for it. And uh, I'm not going anywhere. So I love it. Yeah. Really grateful to be on the show and hopeful for the future. Absolutely. And you have to run for office, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Well, that might just happen. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Ben. Okay. Thank you. People, he is a member of the steering committee for the BC Community Alliance, a local nonprofit organization that is dedicated to dismantling systemic racism. And I guarantee you, he will be an influential voice in this province. He is Markeel Simpson. And I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Peace.